Today is Wednesday, April the 19th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The FTC is investigating the flow of pixel-based ad tracking. Last month, the Federal Trade Commission's newly launched Office of Technology published a blog post entitled, Lurking Beneath the Surface, Hidden Impacts of Pixel Tracking. It includes the explanation as to why businesses use pixels to track consumer behavior, page views, clicks, interactions with ads, and to target ads to users who may be more likely to engage or purchase something based on that prior online behavior. FTC isn't only calling out digital health companies like GoodRx and BetterHelp for sharing health data through pixels with third parties for advertising. It's questioning the overall use of pixel-based ad tracking. Regulators are tracking how data flows between first parties and their partners, and their first parties are responsible for what happens when the data they collect is shared with others. Most companies aren't intentionally violating the law or ignoring regulatory guidance. But there's often a disconnect between what a company thinks its app or website is doing and what's actually happening. Technically speaking, healthcare startups are reassessing now how their websites and apps are built and how third parties may inadvertently or not be putting patients' protected health information at risk. In March, U.S. mental health startup Cerebro admitted it shared the private health information of more than 3 million users with Facebook, Google, TikTok, and other ad giants via so-called tracking pixels. These near-invisible bits of code are typically embedded in web pages to share information about users' activity, often for analytics. The company Cerebro said these trackers inadvertently collected sensitive data user information since it began operating in October of 2019. In its disclosure to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, that's HHS, Cerebo said that following a review of its code, it determined that it had disclosed certain information that may be regulated as protected health information under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, also known as HIPAA. This information included patients' home numbers, IP addresses, insurance information, mental health assessment responses, and associated clinical data. This data lapse is the third largest breach of health data in 2023, according to the HHS, which is investigating the breach. However, while Cerebra's lapse ranks among the most serious and damaging, the breach is just one of many currently being investigated by HHS 
and this list is likely to grow. Last year, a joint investigation of the firm's STAT and the markup found that dozens of hospital websites and telehealth startups were sharing patients' medical information with advertisers and tech giants. Facebook is receiving sensitive medical information from hospital websites. Experts say some hospital use of an ad tracking tool may violate a federal law protecting health information. A tracking tool installed on many hospital websites has been collecting patient-sensitive health information, including details about their medical conditions, prescriptions, and doctor's appointments, and sending it to Facebook. The markup tested the websites of Newsweek's top 100 hospitals in America. On 33 of them, they found a tracker called the Metapixel, sending Facebook a packet of data whenever a person clicked a button to schedule a doctor's appointment. The data is connected to an IP address, an identifier that's like a computer's mailing address, and can generally be linked to a specific individual or household, creating an intimate receipt of the appointment request for Facebook. The markup also found the Metapixel installed inside the password protected patient portals of seven health systems. On five of these systems pages, the documented Pixel sending Facebook data about real patients who volunteered to participate in the Pixel Hunt project, a collaboration between the markup and Mozilla Rally. The project is a crowdsourced undertaking in which anyone can install Mozilla's Rally browser add-on in order to send the markup data on the Metapixel as it appears on the sites they visit. The data sent to hospitals included the names of patients, medications, descriptions of their allergic reactions, and details about their upcoming doctor's appointments. The law prohibits covering entities like hospitals from sharing personally identifiable health information with third parties like Facebook except when an individual has expressly consented in advance or under certain contracts. Neither the hospitals nor Meta said they had such contracts in place, and the markup found no evidence that the hospitals or Meta were otherwise obtaining patients' express consent. The 33 hospitals the markup found sending patient appointment details to Facebook collectively reported more than 26 million patient admissions and outpatients since 2020, according to the most recent data available from the American Hospital Association. Their investigation was limited to just over 100 hospitals. The data sharing likely affects many more patients and institutions from then identified. Facebook itself is not subject to HIPAA, but there are concerns about how the advertising giant might use the personal health data it's collecting for its own profit. This is an extreme example of exactly how far the tentacles of big tech reach into what we think of as protected data space. The market was unable to determine whether Facebook used the data to target advertisements, train its algorithms, or profit in other ways. The Metapixel is a snippet of code that tracks users as they navigate through a website logging which pages they visit, which buttons they click, and certain information they enter into forms. It's one of the most prolific tracking tools on the internet, present on more than 30% of most popular sites on the web, according to Markup's analysis. 
In exchange for installing its Pixel, Meta provides website owners analytics about the ads they place on Facebook and Instagram and tools to target people who visit their website. HIPAA lists IP addresses as one of the 18 identifiers when linked to information about a person's health conditions, care, or payment, and can qualify the data as protected health information. Unlike anonymized or aggregate health data, hospitals can't share protected health information with third parties except under the strict terms of business associate agreements that restrict how the data can be used. In addition, if a patient is logged into Facebook when they visit a hospital's website where a meta pixel is installed, some browsers will attach third-party cookies, another tracking mechanism that allow meta to link pixel data to specific Facebook accounts. And in several cases, they found using both dummy accounts that the Meta Pixel made it even easier to identify patients. The Pixel sent Facebook not just the name of the doctor and the field of medicine, but also the first name, last name, email address, phone number, zip code, and city of residence that they enter into the booking form. The Meta Pixel hashed those personal details, obscuring them through a form of cryptography before sending them to Facebook. But that hashing doesn't prevent Facebook from using the data. In fact, Meta explicitly uses the hash information to link pixel data to Facebook profiles. Using a free online tool, the markup was also able to reverse most of their hash test information sent to Facebook. The pixel told Facebook the type of allergic reaction the patient had to a specific medication. The markup found that the MetaPixel collected a variety of other sensitive information. Clicking on one button prompted the Pixel to tell Facebook the name and dosage of a medication in the health record, as well as any notes entered about the prescription. The Pixel also told Facebook which button clicked in response to a question about sexual orientation. Facebook is able to infer intimate details about people's health conditions using other means, for example. The fact that a person liked a Facebook group associated with a particular disease. But the data collected by Pixels on hospital website is more direct. And in sharing it with Facebook, experts says healthcare providers risk damaging patients' trust in an increasingly digitized health system. Almost any patient would be shocked to find out that Facebook is being provided an easy way to associate their prescriptions with their name, even if perhaps there's something in the legal architecture that permits this to be lawful, it's totally outside the expectation of what patients think the health privacy laws are doing for them. Facebook's data collection on hospital websites has been the subject of class action lawsuits in several states with mixed results. When an individual has sought out a provider and indicated they want to make an appointment, at that point, any individually identifiable health information that they provided in this session in the past or certainly in the future, is protected under HIPAA and could not be shared with a third party like Facebook. Generally, HIPAA-covered entities and business associates should not be sharing identifiable information with social media companies unless they have HIPAA authorization and from the individual consent under state law. 
Patients have the right to file HIPAA complaints with their medical providers who are required to investigate the complaints. Meta explicitly states in its business tools terms of service that the Pixel and other trackers do collect personally identifiable information for a variety of purposes. Facebook created this little piece of code that does the snooping for them, and then they just put it out into the universe. Facebook can try to claim plausible deniability. The fact that this is out there in the wild on the websites of hospitals is evidence of how broken the rules are. Google TV is getting 800 free streaming channels from partners like Tubi, Plex, and Haystack News. Google's aggregation of several existing free TV services is a move to differentiate its streaming operating interface from competitors including Roku, Apple, and Amazon. Google announced that it's adding more than 800 free channels to its Google TV software on the Chromecast streaming device and select TVs made by Sony, CL, Hisense, and Philips. Google's aggregation of several existing free TV services like Fox's Tubi, Paramount's Global's Pluto TV, and Haystack News is a move to differentiate its streaming operating interface from competitors including Roku, Apple, and Amazon, and it may help attract people to Google's platform who otherwise don't want to pay for streaming services. The Alphabet unit said it is integrating free channels into the Live tab where users will see content from channels like NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox. The service is launching in the United States on all Google TV devices. Eligible Android TV devices will be able to access the new TV guide and free channels later this year. Google TV has more free TV than any other streaming device. If you've recently cut down on the number of best streaming services you subscribe to and now feel your Google TV content library is a little sparse, don't fret. Over 800 channels just got added and they're all free. All users of Google TV devices in the United States, be it Chromecast with Google TV or a display from Sony, TCL, and the like with Google TV built in, should now see a new live tab option, full to the brim with free content you can watch at no additional charge. It's thanks to new integration. There are various news channels, including ABC, CBS, NBC, and plenty of others, which will give you easy access to information about current affairs in the United States and worldwide. Then there's a suite of entertainment channels, including Warner Brothers TV watch list and stories by AMC, which lets you watch some of these platforms' best and most popular shows, such as Westworld and The Walking Dead. You can also find the dedicated channels for iconic reality TV shows, such as Top Gear, Hell's Kitchen, and Mythbusters, where every episode is streamed back-to-back-to-back nonstop. You can even find content across 10 languages, including English, Spanish, and even Japanese. Best of all, Google's TV Live tab won't just present you with a block of 800 channels. It will also separate them into groups to help you find what you want to watch. Want to get up to speed with current events? There's a news and opinion group. Want to watch a blockbuster flick? 
there's a movie group. You can even curate your own group of favorite channels to quickly access the free TV you enjoy most. Just note that, unlike a show on Netflix, this is live TV. So if you miss the start of a show, you won't be able to rewind and catch up. You also won't be able to pause the show, so if you need to grab a snack, you need to wait for an ad break. The new live TV guide won't just bring together these free TV channels for you to browse. It will also organize the paid live TV channels for you to browse. It'll also organize the paid live TV subscriptions you've got access to from services like YouTube TV or Sling TV. It'll be your new one-stop shop for live TV. With the introduction of these channels, Google now boasts that it has more free TV channels in one place than any other smart TV platform. There's no word yet on if the live TV will be coming to regions outside the United States, but Google says it'll be rolling out to eligible Android TV devices later this year. So keep an eye out for updates if you use an Android TV-powered smart TV. Google Photos Update brings new movie editor feature to Chromebooks. The new features should be arriving soon. Google is starting to roll out new movie editor and video editing features on Google Photos. The tools will allow users to create a movie from scratch or choose a preset. Users will need to have the Google Photos app installed on their Chromebook. Last year in July, Google teased that it was giving Chromebooks new movie editing tools through Google Photos. Those features are finally starting to arrive. In a post on the Google Photos community page, the company announced that new video editing features are starting to roll out for Google's Photos on Chromebooks. These features will allow you to seamlessly use images and videos from your Chromebook and edit in Google Photos. When you use the movie editor, you'll have a choice between making your own movie or using suggested themes. If you choose to do it by yourself, you'll have the freedom to pick whatever you want from your gallery and make adjustments to images or scenes using the built-in editor. But if you choose suggested themes, the feature will select videos and images for you based on your theme. You'll still be able to swap out and edit the pics. Select the theme and the people or pets you'll like to include, and Google Photos will use both video clips and photos to create a custom movie. It even intelligently selects the most meaningful moments from your long videos. Unlike a full-fledged movie editor app, you won't need to understand all the intricacies that go into making a high-quality movie. Google states that the revamped movie creation tools will help you make high-quality movies with just a few taps. But don't go in expecting this tool to be as robust as more professional editing software. In order to use the features, you have to install the Google Photos app on your Chromebook, if you haven't already. As for when it will be available, it should roll out to everyone in the coming days. I'm looking forward to getting this app onto my Chromebook because I've got a lot of videos to edit. Microsoft is developing a new version of Windows named Core PC. That's C-O-R-E-P-C. Windows security and updates have 
been a long-standing issue for Microsoft, prompting some users to switch to other operating systems. Now, in an effort to solve this issue, Microsoft is reportedly working on a new version of Windows named Core PC, which promises to offer better security and faster updates. Core PC is a modular and customizable variant of Windows that will allow Windows to leverage different form factors with varying levels of feature and app compatibility. With Core PC, Microsoft aims to achieve the same goals as Windows Core OS and Windows 10X, two of Microsoft's previously canceled projects aimed at modernizing its operating system. However, Core PC is different from previous projects because it is state-separated, which enables faster updates and a more secure platform. State separation splits up the operating system into multiple partitions, making it easier to deliver faster OS updates and more reliable system reset functionality. Microsoft is eyeing Chrome OS and Apple. Microsoft intends to release a version of Windows that can rival Google's Chrome OS in terms of flexibility, running on web apps, and its Office suite. Additionally, it is also developing a version of Core PC that has the same features and capabilities as Windows Desktop, but with state separation enabled for faster updates and improved security. Furthermore, Microsoft aims to challenge Apple by making a version of Windows that specifically caters to ARM devices, enhancing the operating system's performance when tied to specific hardware, such as Surface devices running ARM chips. Lastly, given the success of ChatGPT and its integration into various Microsoft services like Bing and Office, the company now also plans to include AI features in Core PC to make it more user-friendly. Although there's not much information available about these features, reports suggest that Windows might be able to analyze on-screen content and provide appropriate contextual cues. The post Microsoft is developing a new version of Windows named Core PC appeared first on Android headlines. Evolving so fast that a group of industry executives and AI experts join Elon Musk in signing an open letter urging artificial intelligence development be paused due to risk to society and humanity. The group is asking for a six-month pause so that shared safety protocols can be developed, implemented, and audited by independent experts. Well, the OpenAI founder says that there's no chat GPT-5 to worry about. The tech founder, Sam Altman, spoke at an MIT event and addressed a widely circulated open letter urging artificial intelligent labs to step back from further development for six months. Sam Altman has squashed rumors that OpenAI is already working on ChatGPT5, just a month after the company's release of its GPT-4. Currently, there is no GPT-5 in training, Altman said while speaking virtually at an event at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He was asked for his thoughts on the recently released and widely circulated open letter demanding an AI pause. 
In response, the OpenAI founder shared some of his critiques. An earlier version of the letter claimed, OpenAI is training GPT-5 right now. We are not, and won't sometime, Ortman noted. But GPT-5 or not, Ortman's statement isn't likely to be particularly reassuring to AI critiques. The tech founder followed up his no-GPT-5 announcement by immediately clarifying that upgrades and updates are in the works for GPT-4. There are ways to increase a technology's capacity beyond releasing an official higher number version of it. We are doing other things on top of GPT-4 that I think have all sorts of safety issues that are important to address and were totally left out of the letter, Altman said, in essence admitting that OpenAI is shipping product tweaks that may not be totally optimized for the good of humanity or user safety. For instance, in late March, the company released a plugin for GPT-4 that let its large language model browse the internet, which could lead to even more data privacy and user manipulation concerns. Altman did attempt a meager effort at assuaging AI fears. He said that OpenAI spent over six months training GPT-4 before its public release. He also noted that taking the time to really study the safety of the model, well, that's important. As capabilities get more and more serious, the safety bar has got to increase, Altman added. I think moving with caution and an increasing rigor for safety issues is really important. The letter, I don't think, is the optimal way to address it. Yet, you should probably take OpenAI CEO safety prioritization claims with some skepticism. At the meeting at MIT, not everything the controversial entrepreneur said rang true. Asked if OpenAI will continue to be transparent going forward, Altman said, we certainly plan to continue doing that, except the question itself is misleading. OpenAI, which was once a truly open source nonprofit organization, has become an increasingly closed-off for-profit corporation. GPT-4 especially is a black box. The company has not released any information on the training data. Its most recent chat box was fine-tuned on. Nor has it shared any information on GPT-4's architecture, construction, or other true inner workings. Given both the competitive landscape and the safety implications of large-scale models like GPT-4, this report contains no further details about the architecture, including the model size, hardware, training, compute, data set, construction, training method, or similar in the technical report that the company published alongside the GPT-4 release. Altman said, I think a lot of other companies don't want to say something until they're sure it's right. But I think this technology is going to so impact all of us that we believe that engaging everyone in the discussion, putting these systems out into the world, deeply imperfect though they are in their current state, so that people get to experience them, think about them, understand the upsides and the downsides. It's worth the trade-off even though we do tend to embarrass ourselves in public and have to change our minds with new data frequently. You might believe AI's chatbots are the beginning of the end of the human race, or you may think that all of this so-called artificial intelligence stuff is 
and overhype. Regardless where you stand on the call for a six-month AI moratorium, though, Altman's answer to the open letter was something of a, well, non-answer. And by the way, the irony of all this is the one who started OpenAI as an open organization was Elon Musk. The FBI warns against using public phone charging stations. The FBI is warning consumers about juice jacking, where bad actors use public chargers to infect phones and devices with malware. The law enforcement agency says consumers should avoid using public chargers at malls and airports and stick to their own USB cables and charging plugs. The FBI recently warned consumers against using free public charging stations, saying crooks have managed to hijack public chargers that can infect devices with malware or software that can give hackers access to your phone, tablet, or computer. Avoid using free charging stations in airports, hotels, or shopping centers, a tweet from the FBI Denver field office said. Bad actors have figured out ways to use public USB ports to introduce malware and monitoring software onto devices. Carry your own charger and USB cord and use an electrical outlet instead. The FBI offers similar guidance on its website to avoid public charges. The bulletin didn't point to any recent instances of consumer harm from juice jacking. The FBI Denver field office said the message was meant as an advisory and that there was no specific case that prompted it. The Federal Communications Commission has also warned about juice jacking as the malware loading scheme is known as since 2021. Consumer devices with compromised USB cables can be hijacked through software that can then siphon off usernames and passwords. The FCC warned at the time. The commission told consumers to avoid those public stations. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about IT, the workplace, things on the internet that can engage our jobs or disrupt them. And you'd have to be living under a rock to not have heard about ChatGPT. I'm going to give you just a quick rundown of what it is. It is, well, it's artificial semi-appearing to be like intelligence. It technically is the next level, the next generation of those autocomplete items with your uh, with your smartphone or any kind of website search or so forth. It's doing a little bit more research. It's trying to figure out what you want, and it's putting it all together. But people are starting to use this in a variety of amazing different ways. People are using this to write resumes and cover letters to get a new job. It's interesting because it is using natural language processing. It is using machine learning to develop and create something much better than what you may have put out there because it's going through 
and it's following upon your individual skill, your individual experience, and leveraging the right words that you may struggle with coming up with. AI, what passes for <laughs> what passes for intelligence, is actually quite amazing. It's it's going to just change a lot of different things as it moves along. And the funny thing is, you may be struggling with this idea. Ooh, do I really want a computer to write my resume? I'll tell you something. For years, they have been utilizing all kinds of computer programs to fold, spindle, mutilate, process your resume to see who should be interviewed, who should rise to the top, and who should get sent to the round file. They've got all kinds of algorithms that look through to analyze the resume against that job description to see if you're going to be the right fit. And I'll tell you, I have actually taken an interview with with what amounts to a chatbot. I have sat there and developed an interview and provided the information in regards to everything that they said that they were looking for to a computer. I never saw a human in the process of going through three tests and an on-screen interview. And somewhere along the way, they figured I wasn't the right fit for the job. I'll tell you, during the experience, I was questioning whether or not I wanted to have that job. But that's another story. So how can we leverage this? How can we utilize this to our best benefit? First and foremost, do not rely solely on this artificial intelligence. You may have heard me previously here just a few minutes ago saying it's semi-intelligent, kind of dismissing some of the levels of it. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to admit it's not going to be perfect. It is going to be a useful tool, but it's going to depend on how you use it. You still need to network. You still need to apply to the jobs. You still need to do all kinds of different research and figure out everything you can to make sure you pass the interviews. A resume is your foot in the door. Now, you also have to keep the resume up to date. It is not going to know everything about you. It's not going to know all of your experience. It's not going to be able to develop the best resume on its own. You have to feed it a lot of information. So you've got to keep it fully updated. You also have to be very careful that this the various things that might happen with the resume, it may go off on tangents. It may take a while to develop exactly what you want out of it. And there could be some things that creep in there that should never be in there. You need to make sure that you are highlighting your skills, your experience, your entire just everything that's there, you need to be making sure that you are putting the proper emphasis that you want because that's going to personalize your resume. The AI can develop a resume that looks good on paper, but when somebody reads it, they're going to say it's dry, it's boring, it's predictable. You want it to look good. 
But uh, yeah. Last up, you do need to make sure that you are aiming at all of these AI-powered screening tools. You want to make sure that you go through, if you're going to use ChatGPT, make sure, or, or any of its variants, you, you need to make sure that it also is going to look at your resume. You need to pass it by it. Say, hey, this job description, this resume, would these work out? Would these match? And there's there's going to be tricks that you're going to have to do. You're going to have to tell it. You're going to have to do all kinds of jumps through various hoops to have it do exactly what you want it to do. It's going to be work. But you know what? It's it's going to change this entire job search process as we know it. Both sides of this. There are going to be different things that are going to pop up. They're going to creep in along the way. And you may not be fully successful, but you may gain some leverage by having the computer look at your resume with a different set of eyes than what you use. It's no different than what I've done when I've submitted my resume out to a professional resume rewriter. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Time to ditch the negative stigma around Chromebooks. For the average consumer with needs for the basic functions of email, online shopping, paying bills online, and doing information browsing, the Chromebook fills in all the checkboxes. Chrome OS has continued to mature as a platform, bringing with it much-needed improvements and functionality that were previously missing. There seems to be a bit of stigma about Chromebooks and other Chrome OS devices, and Google is partly to blame. Chromebooks have become a staple in classrooms across the country, partially due to their low-cost nature, enterprise control, and general ease of use. Chrome is the most popular internet browser in the world. From a hardware perspective, the different Chromebooks that are available now are just as impressive as what you would see on the Windows side. Take the HP Dragonfly Pro Chromebook, powered by the Intel Core i5-1295U paired with 16GB of RAM and 256GB of solid-state storage. Not to mention, a gorgeous display that can reach up to 1,200 nits of peak brightness. Compare that to the Microsoft Surface Laptop 5, as it's also powered by Intel's 12th generation Core i5-1235U chip. The main difference here is that Microsoft offers some flexibility in the way of configurations, but for the same $1,000 that the Dragonfly Pro Chromebook retails for, you get a Surface Laptop 5 with 8GB of RAM and 256GB of solid-state storage. That's with half the memory of the HP Chromebook. On the MacBook side of the world, the only option currently available in Apple's lineup that matches up with the same $1,000 price tag is the 2020 MacBook Air. Apple recently updated its MacBook Air with an all-new design, but this also brought along a price increase retailing for $1,200. However, you don't need to spend $1,000 to get a great Chromebook. Just as an aside, this is just an example of comparing the most premium Chromebook with what you'll find for Microsoft and Windows. There are plenty of great Chromebooks that 
don't cost near as much, while offering things like convertible design or stowable USI pens such as the Acer Chromebook Spin 714. In just the last two years, not only have we seen more high-end Chromebooks released, but the platform itself continues to see massive improvements. When you walk into your big box computer store today, you'll see some of the best cheap Chromebooks, but these are also flanked by gaming-centric options, along with dual-purpose solutions. Just in the last year, we've seen Chrome OS expand into the gaming space thanks to Google's ongoing development of bringing Steam to the platform. It also helps that there are a plethora of cloud gaming solutions at your disposal. And that's not to mention the ability to play many of the best Android games right from the Play Store. Not only is Google working to improve the functionality of Chrome OS, but you can do almost everything on a Chromebook that you could on Windows or Mac OS. This includes things like video editing and tinkering around with Linux without being too concerned with rendering your device useless. There are still some limitations. Chromebooks continue to be among some of the most affordable laptops on the market, matching up spec for spec with some of the best cheap Windows laptops, and only a couple of Chromebooks come even close to matching up, at least price-wise. With Apple's MacBook lineup, however, there's still quite a bit of commentary suggesting that you should opt for a Windows or Mac OS-powered laptop over a Chromebook. The reality is that barely anyone is going to go through the steps to enable Linux on Chromebooks. This is both problematic and a non-factor, as it's great for tinkerers to have this flexibility, but, but the average consumer likely will ever need that. It's problematic because while there are an incredible number of apps on the Play Store and progressive web apps continue to get more impressive, they don't fill every need. In some cases, you can improve the usefulness of a Chromebook just by installing a Linux app, but it's not exactly the most user-friendly experience. Meanwhile, if there's an app that you want, you can just download it on your Windows or Mac OS laptop. Even Apple's M-series of processors have the ability to run apps that aren't designed for the architecture, thanks to the Rosetta 2 translation environment. Unfortunately, it's not like you can download a .exe or .dmg file on a Chromebook, as there's no transition layer available, at least not yet. Outside of some potential niche use cases, a Chromebook should be considered if you're in the market. You already know how Chrome works, and that's really all you need to know. And if you're inclined to do so, you can play around with enabling Linux and tinkering with different apps or environments. Or maybe you want to play some of your favorite Steam games. Well, you can do that too with just a couple of clicks. It's really time for everyone to stop thinking that Chromebooks are useless for anything other than kids in school. The Chromebooks today are much more affordable, even at the high end, compared to similarly spec Windows laptops. Chrome OS isn't going anywhere anytime soon, and I can't wait to see what the next big thing will be. Printing can still be problematic with a Chromebook. Vendor driver support is still pretty limited. The one big thing where Chromebooks excel over computers with other operating system is the ability to do a simple factory reset to refresh the system when needed, and your data is intact sitting in the cloud. The downside is, of course, the need to always have the internet readily available. 
presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. Marty, you you had discussed the the whole blizzard thing, the bomb blizzard that hit you back right uh, right before Christmas, yeah. and and you day and a half before. Yeah, and you were telling me that some of that disaster that happened then, some of the fixes from that turned into another disaster. Well, not a disaster not, okay, exactly. Okay, okay. I mean, I, I didn't have to replace the whole outdoor tankless water heater again. But sure, yeah. Uh, what, what did happen, these things, it's a condensing tankless water heater because they preheat the water. Mm-hmm. By having a loop of the incoming cold water go over the flue to where the main heating of the hot water happens. Because it's colder than the gas, some of the okay. gas condenses. Yeah. That's a heavily acidic liquid, and it needs to be drained specifically through a neutralizer or to a neutralizer mm-hmm. so that it doesn't destroy whatever you have for a sewer or a septic or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that's on there. You know, this... The main unit is good to 30 Fahrenheit below, which is something like 21. I'm sorry, 30 centigrade below, which is something like 21 Fahrenheit. Colder than it gets here. Okay. Yeah. Except for Tuesdays. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I wasn't worried about the main body uh, cracking again, unless we had another massive power failure. And in that case, I know to take it gently before turning it back on again. Mm Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, we're home free now. But (laughs) we had another very, very cold night. And I'm in the shower. Hot shower. Felt good. Proud of myself. Congratulating myself for the wonderful work (laughs) on the hot water. And the water turns cold. And I thought, come on. There's no way for this to happen. (laughs) So I, you know, rinsed the suds off, dried myself. Went down to the basement and saw that the control panel throwing an error code. Okay. Got to go look up the error code. And the error code says that the condensate, that acid condensate drain is plugged. Okay. It, it had frozen solid and there's only about two inches of outside the box. So so, that, so it, it, it really, yeah. It, it, it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so should have had low chance to freeze, but okay, I get it. I, I thought I am not going to take a non-nerd approach to this. This calls for nerd. <laughs> Good for you. All right, so how'd you do it? All right, so the first thing I did before I ordered anything else was I took some insulating the snap-on foam pipe jacket and yeah. I took the hot water, the cold water, and the drain lines and gave them each little black coats. Temporary, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not good for the deep, deep. And I thought, what do RVs do? Mm-hmm. And I looked it up online. It didn't cost very much. 12 volt, kind of like little heating pads, sticky back, flexible pads that mm-hmm. RVs put on. There are three tanks for okay. some models. All right. So, okay. I thought, all right, 12 volts. So that's not bad. And I've got enough old wall warts here. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. It was easy enough to find. I also had an old project box that was waterproof, complete with a gasket on it. Uh-huh. Okay. I needed one more thing. Uh, are you familiar with bimetal thermal switches? 
Uh, just, uh, I'm aware of them. I, I yeah, haven't had it. It's a snap action yeah, thing. Yeah, the, yeah. the two metals will snap open or closed at a right. specific temperature. Yeah, yeah. And you can buy them so they're normally closed until it climbs to that temperature or normally open till it climbs to that temperature. Mm-hmm. Well, you know me, I love thinking backwards. Yes. So I found a switch that's good for five degrees centigrade, which is 41 Fahrenheit. Uh-huh. And normally closed, which means that any time it's warmer than 41, that switch is off. Yeah. It's not, it's yeah, not going to yeah, yeah. send the juice, right? As soon as it starts dropping into the 30s, it turns on. So I put together a little box with uh, that and mm-hmm. the wires mm-hmm. from the power supply and the wires to the uh, little heater thing. I wrapped those wires. I, I took a piece of... Uh, indoor power wiring yeah. pulled the wires out and i had the jacket mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. i put that around the, just just as a little safety thing and of course put a drip loop at the bottom so anything that was heading down there would drip to the ground instead of going inside the house or inside the unit or anything else like that did as neat a job as i could but i thought i'm not trusting this uh-huh. so i grabbed my black vinyl electrical tape and mm-hmm. went around the place where the gasket was and the thing was screwed together. And now that's not getting anything in it. Both <laughs> <laughs> nice. the box to the wall. Mm-hmm. The wiring all fit. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And yeah, it, it, it's, it's uh, kind of interesting. But there's no way now if there's power here and the thing won't run if there's not power, I don't think. But if, if there's no power here, if, as long as there's power here, the drain's not plugging. And as soon and as there's yeah. power here, the drain will unplug. It's yeah. everything yeah. I wanted it to be. Uh, oh, also, I did a fresh run of that insulating foam around the drain pipe. Yes. A yes, little good. bit longer this time. Now, when I put the heating pad, the flexible heating pad around it, I put a couple of belts of electrical tape on to hold it on. Mm-hmm, and when mm-hmm. I put the foam around that, I gave it a couple of belts. That's not sure. going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't even collect snow, so I got it, which it should. But uh, Very that, good. That was my nerdy solution for I love myself it. in hot water. I love it. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Brookdale Computer Users Group podcasts for and by you what, why, and how. Thursday, April the 27th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is bcug.com. Tech Ed Connect, formerly the Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, May the 4th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, May the 5th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Their website is acgnj.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, May 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And 
To confirm, the telephone is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a meeting Thursday, May the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, May 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is limac.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.